Women on the Line, produced at 3CR, acknowledges the people of the Kulin Nations, who are the true owners, caretakers and custodians of the lands from which we broadcast. We pay respect to elders past and present, and we recognise their unceded sovereignty. So welcome back to Women on the Line, where National Feminist Current Affairs Program, produced by women and gender non-conforming people at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne, Nam, on Wurundjeri Country, and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm Shahira Zablul, and welcome back. The COVID-19 pandemic has had multiple and compounding effects worldwide. So from a lack of resources for countries to exacerbated living conditions for people on the margins and finding their livelihoods no longer sustained due to flow-on health and socioeconomic effects of restrictions and obviously sickness. So in today's episode, we'll be airing conversations about these effects on the working class in India and we'll hear a conversation about the current climate in Cuba. Firstly, we'll hear a conversation from Giselle Hanna from 3CR's Asia-Pacific Currents program, who spoke with Sujata. So based in Mumbai, India, Sujata is a social justice and labour movement activist and speaks about the effects of COVID-19 on the working class in India. And so we'll enter the conversation with an introduction of Sujata and the work she does. I'm Sujata. Um, I've been part of the, uh, the the feminist movement and the labor movement for the last uh, about 40 years or more. Um, I'm part of an organization called Forum, which is a women's organization. Uh, and I've been associated with various uh, uh, labor groups you know, earlier. Uh, and I worked uh, briefly for about uh, uh, half a decade with the uh, uh, International Union of Food Workers. And I've been part of the labour scene in Maharashtra. Here in Australia, we've been watching the uh, tragic situation unfold in India. We understand that you're up to 400,000 transmissions a day of COVID. Instead of ramping up the health system and getting uh, getting vaccines, etc., our government was very busy in uh, in showing off a little bit in terms a lot actually in terms of how we have uh, uh, defeated Corona, how we've defeated COVID-19. And so then you have these horrendous uh, 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 pictures and images of, of, of deaths all over. Uh, some states more than, uh, uh, than others. My state had it quite badly, uh, but not, not as bad as uh, like Uttar Pradesh, which is the largest in terms of population. Uh, and um, now things are a little bit better in the sense that the 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 number the uh, the number of infections and the number of uh, deaths mortality uh, has uh, become less. But there's there's another talk about the third wave. So one is really very apprehensive, and you know uh, everybody's very worried of what will happen. And there's no sight sight of vaccines. Uh, uh, vaccines may be a very, very small proportion, less than 5% of, of the population has had two doses. And about 12, 13% have had one dose. Uh, and um, in India, the percentage uh, uh, is huge. I mean, you know, you when you say 1%, it's a huge number. 
so when you say that uh, uh, 96% of, of people are not vaccinated and uh, not given both the doses, it's it's really like a very, very, very uh, catastrophic situation. So, so there is a lot of worry, there's a lot of uh, apprehension that is still uh, very much there. Uh, and uh, the, the uh, a situation with regard to the economy is no better. So you, on the one hand, you have the corona, uh, the, the COVID-19 virus and the, and the disease and the mortality at one level. At another level, there is uh, there are no jobs. Jobs have been, I mean, the, the number of jobs that have gone, it's like, uh, like just only in May 2021, 20, um, 15.33 million jobs were lost. So uh, uh, it's a very, very... Uh, uh, Burying situation. Uh, uh, you never know when people will just, you know, uh, uh, slide into starvation deaths and stuff like that. So it's really very, uh, very difficult. Yeah. So I'm assuming the job losses and the economic um, collapse is due to lockdowns and and closing things down. Is that is that what has happened in India? Have there been lockdowns? Uh, you know, uh, as you would know, Giselle, um, well over ninety percent, and some say ninety-seven percent of uh, of the workers uh, in India uh, belong to what is called the informal economy. Now, in informal economy, when you look at look at look on the ground level situation, it means that if you work today, you will give be able to put food on the plates of your family and yourself in the evening. Not otherwise. That is the grim situation because there's no social security of any sort here. Uh, so um, when the lo- first lockdown was was, uh, was declared end of March, uh, there was, there was uh, a notice of four hours that was given. India is a huge country, a notice of four hours with, uh, with uh, stopping all transport. Uh, and uh, so pe- uh, a very large proportion of, of uh, people, millions of pe- uh, workers uh, are migrant workers because of the, because of various situations, including the un- uneven development of the of states. So you have these states that are uh, that, that are migrant senders. Um, so you have UP, Bihar, uh, Orissa, West Bengal, Jharkhand, Chhattisgarh, uh, large uh, parts of uh, uh, central India send workers to west, to the west, and to the south, and all these people were stranded. Uh, they just couldn't move. And uh, if you if you look at the situation of, of the housing here, um, there is no housing. So there, there are people like seven, eight uh, workers, six, eight construction workers, would be living in one room, uh, and um, the, the, uh, that is where uh, you were just. Dumped, you know, you were you were you had to stay in the, the, that room because you couldn't get out. Um, there was no food, so if the food was being served by some NGO, you had to go and get it, which which often the police distribute you up. And this is really on the ground situation. It's not at all an exaggeration. It's actually it's a, a very understatement. So that is a, I mean, uh, I'm the situ- the situation of the economy was bad even before COVID. Uh, in, in fact, the, uh, the informal economy had been going down since the, uh, the, the disastrous uh, experiment of the 
uh, demonetization. Because a lot of the economy, whether it's agriculture or the informal economy, depends on 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 cash. And when you when you suddenly eighty six percent of the cash is rendered uh, uh, invalid, illegal, um, the entire economy crumbles. So the, the, the it had begun, the collapse had begun even before uh, uh, the, the two thousand and twenty uh, lockdown. But it was really very strict and almost draconian. That sort of broke the back totally. I forgot about the demonetization project. I mean, we knew that the global economy was on the brink of collapse prior to COVID and that COVID catalyzed recession in most parts of the world. Um, so it makes sense that India was also on the verge of collapse prior to COVID as well. Yeah. Uh, but we also can't deny that there is a, a pandemic that requires a health response and you you talked a little bit about the lack of vaccination um, but also the ineffectiveness of lockdown because of the sheer volume of people in the country most of whom live in destitution how do we fight back how do we resist the economic collapse but actually what should we be asking for to uh, to to fix the economy and the health crisis Basically, there are about uh, about uh, uh, seven eight demands that that uh, people on the ground have uh, talked about. One thing is you have to get vaccines. There is no two ways about it, and it has to be free and uh, and uh, universal. So everybody should be. It's, it, it's not pick and choose, and you you know like uh, some people will get it. Uh, you have to pay money, and some people that's that's not how it uh, it will work. That is one. The other thing is that you really need to ramp up uh, the health infrastructure, especially in rural areas, but also elsewhere. Uh, upgrade it, and uh, there's a very huge amount of backlog. You know, there's there's uh, uh, the the ideal ratio of say a nurse to uh, a patient to a nurse to a patient would be like one is to three. And in operation theaters, it's ICUs, etc. It's supposed to be one is to one, but there have been uh, nurses. Uh, there have been studies which show that nurses have been, uh, have they been uh, in some places even even over a hundred people that the nurses had to attend to. That's basically because uh, there have been no recruitment of nurses or doctors or of any health personnel. Um, there have been uh, uh, primary health centers that have been completely vacant. There are there are. Uh, a thousand sheep that are uh, that are uh, uh, sort of you know residing in them because they've been not not open for for years together. So ramping up of health uh, system, recruiting, uh, filling up vacancies and recruiting health workers is absolutely important. Uh, increasing the health budget, like uh, uh, Maharashtra, the state I belong to, it, less than half a percent of uh, of the budget uh, is on health. And it uh, it has to be uh, at least about five percent. Uh, I mean, you know, people people who work in the health movement have have uh, 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 worked it out in terms of how much is necessary. Then we have, you know, we have very good uh, 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 programs. The one program is called ASHA. ASHA would mean accredited. Uh, uh, 
uh, health workers, uh, uh, accredited social health workers, sorry. And uh, uh, they, are, uh, they are in rural areas, they do enormous amounts of work, but they are not, uh, they're not part of the official uh, uh, employment in the uh, health sector. So they are, they are, uh, they, they would be given a thousand rupees, which is absolute peanuts. Um, and uh, they have to do a lot of work. They have to travel a lot. And during COVID, they had to go from house to house survey, surveying um, uh, who has COVID, who has COVID symptoms, I mean. So uh, then there, there is, there is another entire program called Anganwadi, uh, which is like a, like a, uh, you know, uh, for, ch for, for children below six, uh, six years. Uh, the working parents can go and keep them, but even they are given absolute peanuts, you know, 3,000, 4,000. So all these systems really need to, I mean, the systems are quite okay, but they, but the way they are handled, the way, uh, the, the lack of dignity that the personnel uh, uh, is subjected to uh, is uh, like in, in, uh, in many places, uh, we just recently had four meetings of, of uh, various uh, uh, women workers in uh, in various sectors, and they were saying that that uh, uh, they are not even given a a, a, a mask or or, or uh, um, sanitizers or any protective equipment, and uh, uh, so uh, and if they ask if they uh, if they get their own and they ask they will they will not be they will they're often denied. Uh, that is where sometimes uh, uh, some some um, version of a mask is given, but you know it's not uh, it's not updated. It's not something that uh, that is given as frequently as it should be. Uh, so it, especially the, the so-called lower rungs of the health 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 uh, system are really you know like the the health and safety, their working conditions, uh, the hours of work, uh, everything is just uh, completely inhuman. So all that, that needs to change. You were just listening to Mumbai social justice and labour movement activist Sujata, who spoke with Giselle Hanna from 3CR's Asia Pacific Currents. So across these stolen lands now called Australia, you have been listening to Women on the Line, highlighting a range of gender non-conforming and women voices, and it's broadcast across the community radio network. So we'll now hear a conversation that 3CR Tuesday Breakfast's Genevieve had with Dr. Sujata Fernandez about the current protests and the socio-political climate in Cuba. Dr. Fernandez is a professor of sociology at the University of Sydney. The economy is on a sharp downturn and many are concerned for the future, but it is not only COVID that has impacted the country. Sanctions from the US have inhibited Cuba's ability to take part in the global economy and trade. Joining us to discuss the current climate in Cuba and to give us some context on what brought Cuba to this point is Dr. Sujatha Fernandez, a professor of sociology at the University of Sydney, who has written numerous books and published articles on Cuba, and her research combines social theory and political economy with in-depth engaged ethnography of global social movements. Thanks so much for joining us, Sujatha. Thanks for having me. I just wanted to start off by giving a bit of context to our listeners. Uh, these protests have been labelled as a result of ongoing economic woes uh, for Cuban citizens, obviously exacerbated due to COVID, but 
I guess I wanted to focus prior to the pandemic. What was going on in Cuba? Um, Who is in in power and what kind of place is it to live and be a citizen in? So um, Cuba, in Cuba today, prior to the pandemic, the leadership of the country was, uh, the country was being led by the Communist Party and Miguel Diaz-Canel, who is the leader of the Communist Party in Cuba and president of Cuba. And um, the he had taken over from Raul Castro and from the Castro brothers who ruled Cuba for a very long time since the 1959 Cuban revolution and represented to a strong extent a continuity with the policies of the Castro brothers and with the um, and that of the Cuban revolution. So um, prior to the pandemic, Cuba was undergoing a very difficult scenario um, related in part to the ways in which the sanctions, US sanctions, had been tightened under President Trump, the US president, former US president, who um, had restricted travel, had greatly restricted remittances um, of Cuban Americans sending money back to their families. Um, and it had just made tourism much more difficult. And tourism is a lifeline for the Cuban economy and for many Cubans. And so in general, uh, ever since Trump came into office from 2016, Cuba had been going into quite a difficult period. It had also, it's one of its close allies, Venezuela, had also been, has also been experiencing a lot of troubles, internal political conflicts and, um, and also US sanctions. And that had also really made things more difficult on the island for Cubans. So um, so prior to the pandemic already, um, Cuba was experiencing a very difficult scenario. And within this, there were um, certain voices, one of which was the San Isidro movement, who um, had become increasingly vocal. Now, it's it's hard to pass out exactly. My own research has been looking at Cuban hip hop and the arts and all the kinds of very rich activism, feminist activism, Afro-Cuban activism that has taken place for years within Cuba. Um, And it's also been, uh, um, you know, one of the issues that that has worried people inside Cuba has also been intervention of the US. And the US has definitely had a hand in trying to sponsor dissidents within Cuba to turn them against the government. So so it can be a little hard to pass out sometimes what exactly is going on when you have both genuine movements for social change happening within the country, but you also have heavy ideological um, uh, strands from outside the country, particularly, um, you know, Republicans like Marco Rubio, who try to jump on the bandwagon, who, you know, call for humanitarian intervention into Cuba, who, um, you know, and the active sponsorship by groups of USAID of rappers and others within Cuba with the aim of regime change. So we can't separate out these things. They're both part and parcel of what has been happening historically and what's happening today. For sure. It sounds like definitely a blend of both uh, outside intervention and internal uh, problems politically. But uh, just focusing on, because I really want to hone in on especially the US um, a little bit later, but with COVID, obviously COVID's kind of amplified any sort of economic problems that uh, countries uh, had prior to COVID. Exactly what has been the impact on Cuba 
So Cuba, I would say at the beginning, um, handled COVID quite well. They uh, kept numbers low. They restricted tourism and entry to the country. And so they had a very low number of COVID deaths. They were able to maintain food supply. And, and uh, to some degree, at the beginning of the pandemic, um, they did quite well. They also have a very strong biotech industry. And Cuba has actually developed five vaccines, which is remarkable. If you think we're here in Australia and our government hasn't even managed to develop any vaccines, let alone provide adequate vaccines for the population. And such a tiny island under, you know, embargo from the United States has, you know, has managed to produce five vaccines of which the Abdallah vaccine is shown to have after three shots to have a 92% um, efficacy. So um, I would say that that all of that goes to show that, you know, that the focus, the Cuban focus on public health and on prioritising public health played a big role. I, you know, was in touch, I've been in touch with my close friends in Cuba throughout the pandemic and they were very, very um, gung-ho at first about how they were all going to pull through, about, you know, the real um, importance of having a strong public health sector and, uh, you know, they were, they were all sort of in it together and they were very proud of Cuba as a country, where, how it was dealing with the pandemic. Um, and so that was, that was how things were sort of more towards the beginning. And then, uh, this is the problem is when you are a tiny country that is dependent on tourism, uh, Cuba couldn't survive. They couldn't survive. And yes, there were also internal issues. There were issues that, you know, the government was limiting um, the kinds of, you know, public, uh, public activities people could do, public enterprise. They were limiting what people could bring into the country. Um, there, you know, there were issues both from the government end and, as you mentioned before, also on the part of the sanctions that also restricted what, you know, was made available to Cubans. So a severe shortage of medicines, syringes, all of these things that are really essential right now were also being limited. So eventually Cuba had to open itself back up in a limited way to tourism and with tourism came the COVID cases. And so, you know, the country's been averaging six, 7,000 cases a day. Um, that's only the ones we know about as with everywhere else and so it's uh things have gotten worse now they have started from a while back they started um administering vaccines to people uh and first in trials and very quickly after the trials they the people who got placebos were given the actual vaccines and um and that is sort of helping somewhat but the reality of the situation is it's just not possible for the majority of cubans to isolate they have to wait in lines for food they need to participate in different forms of economic activity they have to be on the streets and and especially in poorer areas where it's very difficult for people to socially distance the virus especially with this new delta variant is really spreading and so the sort of uh pot boiler that we see right now and i don't want to overemphasize that because while things are difficult and while there have been protests it's nothing like what is being portrayed in the western media of you know uh massive massive demonstrations going on week long and angry cubans out in the streets and i mean that image that we're being presented it is not true either. So, you know, what I've heard from most of my friends is, yes, there were protests. Yes, people were really angry. They went out in the streets. There was a whole range of reasons. It wasn't just one. They weren't all clamoring for Western freedom. They were, you know, a range of things probably very, you know, at the forefront was the, the shortages, the difficulties, and the feeling that the government was not listening to them. And that, I think, was tying into some of the artistic movements we were seeing earlier so um, so I think that was really a key thing that we've seen in the last week is, uh, 
you know, this this sort of um, pouring out of protest in response to, um, you know, an organic protest in response to the difficulties and the shortages. For sure. I think that's such an important point about the media, especially kind of blowing this out of proportion. And I was going to ask you about, because I... Um, saw on your Twitter that you had some friends in Cuba and just in terms of, yeah, what it was like to be in Cuba now, like what's it like for the people on the ground? Like what's the atmosphere like to kind of put it more into context? Yeah. So again, I think, you know, uh, people, uh, it's an extremely difficult time. Um, I have two friends who, um, you know, older Cuban women, uh, Afro-Cuban women who have, uh, one has been vaccinated, the other's not because she had an allergic reaction. And um, and they're both, you know, saying that things are extremely difficult right now. It's, there's no medicines, there's no, it's very hard to get, you know, basic food supplies, that people are really hurting and people are really struggling. Um, they also said that, you know, they, they haven't seen the kind of widespread unrest that um, these, these friends who live in central Havana and Playa, which are working class neighbourhoods of the city, they haven't really seen the kind of widespread unrest that's being reported in the media and they um, also are quite skeptical of um, of uh, you know that that there are groups outside of Cuba they believe that there are groups outside of Cuba who are trying to um, manipulate the protests who are trying to put their own agenda onto what's happening in Cuba so this is what my friends have been saying to me but at the same time I think one of my friends you know was just telling me that she's been very um uh, disappointed and upset about the ways in which the protests have been represented in the Cuban media by the Cuban government. So uh, people have been represent, you know, young protesters who are angry and who are trying to, you know, express their frustrations are being uh, branded as delinquents and all kinds of racialized and negative language used to describe them. And um, rather than, you know, trying to listen to what they have, they have to say and trying to uh, be open, which I think to some extent in the last few days we have seen that the government has, um, you know, made certain changes. They've uh, uh, waived the limitations on goods that can be brought into the country. They're, you know, I think they're, they're realising that they have to let loose some of this pressure valve if they want to contain the protests and, this can, and, and help people. Um, but, of course, there are also long-standing issues within the Cuban political system that uh, that would take, you know, bigger changes and a lot longer to be addressed. And I think the question remains, you know, is this the start of deeper changes for Cuba, which I remain sceptical can happen within the conditions that Cuba currently is, which is, you know, extreme shortage, extreme difficulty and extreme vulnerability to the kind of manipulation and, uh, short- and, and sanctions from the north. And that was Dr. Sujata Fernandez, a sociology professor at the University of Sydney, speaking on the sociopolitical climate in Cuba. So a huge thank you to both Giselle from 3CR's Asia-Pacific Currents Program and Genevieve from 3CR Tuesday Breakfast for those in-depth conversations that they had on their programs. And that's all we have time for today. We'd love to hear your thoughts or comments about the program. So please send us an email to Women on the Line or give us a call at 3CR on 0394198377. And you can also find us on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. And Women on the Line is a national feminist current affairs program and it's produced and presented by a range of women and gender non-conforming broadcasters from 3CR in NAM, Melbourne. 
And it's broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network and with funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The theme music for Women on the Line is by Ripley Kavara and our programs can be downloaded from 3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line or you can listen to us on your favorite podcasting app. I'm Shahrazad Blum and join us again next week for more women on the line content on your local community radio station.